This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a very special guest in Matt Javis. Welcome, Matt. How are you? Wow, thunderous applause. I need to wake up to this every morning and just like change my alarm clock to Evan saying Matt Jarvis and then thunderous applause. That'll be great. Yeah, and I pronounced your name wrong. It's Jarvis with an R. I've been called so many worse things. You're good, man. Yeah, as long as I got (laughs) half your name right, right? Matt is president of Jarvis Financial, co-founder of the Perfect RIA. And Matt has been in the business for about 20 years, mostly dually registered as an RIA and broker. But in 2018, went pure RIA. And I looked up the website. It looks like dad was in the business. Yeah, that's right. Dad Dad started the company 33 years ago. I joined him in, so he would have started in 90. I joined him in 03. I took over in 08. And he actually finally, not finally, he retired last year. So, so he's, for good. He's done. He's done. We'll see. I keep hoping he's going to make a reprisal. He's young. He's only 65. So he and mom are doing a mission trip right now for their church. I think when they're going to come back, they're going to call me and we'll put him back to work. So there you go. So talk to me a little bit about that. I guess when a son takes over for his dad, a lot of times the son, specifically in this day and age, is fee-based. Maybe 33 years ago, your dad was not fee-based at the time. Was he more into brokerage and then over time turned fee-based? Or how did that transition work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so for guys like you and I that have been in the industry for a few years, right? So back in the early 90s, like fee-based was like this unheard of thing. Like there was a couple, in fact, the closest thing we had to fee-based in the early 90s was 12B1 fees, right? Like that was that was fee-based, right? Yeah. And so he probably in the mid-90s started transitioning over to AUM because he just didn't want to have to earn, like start from zero every single year, right? So he loved the reoccurring revenue side. He felt it put him on a closer side of the table. But we were still doing insurance stuff. Into the mid-2000s, we were still doing variable annuities when they had great riders. We're actually looking at them again now that interest rates are up and that the riders are getting good again. So um, yeah, kind of done the whole spectrum. Interesting. So what percentage of the book was fee-based or and, and what percentage was commission-based, let's just say 2005 when you joined a couple of years prior, but like 2005, what did it look like then? Yeah, we were probably already 80 to 90% fee basis. This depends on how pure somebody is, right? Like the NAPFA guys will say like, hey, if you're taking the flat revenue on an annuity, that's still a commission. Like, well, where's the difference there? I don't know. But like, we were always taking all the flat revenue on all of our annuities. So if you count it that way, I'd say we were kind of 90, 80 to 90% fee-based at that point. And then did the, the move to the RIA side to basically give up that brokerage license, what prompted that move and- what was it basically were you looking at the numbers and you were like the trails we're getting on it's just not worth it anymore yeah that was really kind of it we were looking at the trails and we're saying hey we're paying x to our osj for an override here and we're not we just feel like we're getting value there and that was i think 2010 2011 i gave up my series seven and it was at that point variable nudies were all that we were doing that was left and the riders were so bad in those years didn't make sense to do those anymore either so i thought why am i keeping these licenses why am i hassling with finra let me make the jump awesome So the interesting thing about you, Matt, I follow you online and always thought you were an interesting character. And when I say character, I mean, mean, you like to shake it up a little bit on there. And what's interesting about some of the comments you'll make, you'll say something along the lines of talking about annuities. You'll say like, I don't think anybody should ever have an annuity. Or you say something like very, I, I guess, opinionated. And you have dialogue with people back and forth. And it's actually fun banter. And I'm sure you're just having fun with it. Talk a little bit about that. I always find you to be interesting to watch. Yeah, maybe I'm a contrarian, but anytime somebody tells me like something can only be one way, right? If they say like, if somebody tells me like, let's pick on fees for a second. 
when somebody says like, hey, if you're not fee only, you're a bad advisor. Like I'm technically fee only, but I will fight you all day long if you tell me that someone isn't fee only, they're a bad advisor because that's baloney. Like what makes you a good advisor is how you serve your clients, right? Or somebody says, well, hey, I have no conflicts of interest because I charge an hourly fee. Everyone has conflicts of interest, disclose them or not, that's the issue. So yeah, I love if anybody takes a hard line short of saying like, hey, I want to rip off clients. Like I'm not going to argue the other side of that one. Short of that, like, I'll take the other side of any argument. It's fun. I like watching it. It's entertaining. I actually, I remember there was one debate about somebody who thought annuities fit everybody. And your debate was the complete opposite of that. And I remember watching the back and forth and it was just entertaining to watch. So, Yeah, right. I mean, anytime you say that everybody should do one thing or not do one thing, you're probably wrong, right? I mean, let's look at some easy outliers. So let's talk about your practice a little bit. From your ADV, your ADV was a couple of years old from what I saw, but managing somewhere of 150 to 200 million, somewhere in that vicinity. Yeah, I think we're like 160, 170 right now, depending on where the market's at, yeah. Awesome. And how do you manage, or is, or is everything discretionary based on your end? Are you using more SMA managers? Are you using funds or ETFs? Or how do you manage assets? Great question. Yeah, we have discretion on everything. We're primarily using indexed ETFs and mutual funds, not because, and again, Evan, you and I have been in the industry a long time. Like we remember when there was like this moral crusade that indexing was God's proven way of investing that turned out to not be true. I I do it because it's pretty straightforward. It's an easy discussion with clients and not because I think it's the moral high ground. So yeah, we're very boring portfolios. Every client is in the same model, plus or minus their bond allocation for their goals and objectives. So we really easy on the investment side. So you're just, are you using mutual funds and ETFs for the bond portion of the portfolio as well? Yeah, I am. Like, I love the idea of bond ladders and maybe we should get into that more now that rates are back up, but I just like really easy portfolios. I like to spend my time on the planning side versus like, can I pick which bond maturity is the best one? Excellent. And um, which does mean as you may or be, which does mean we got hammered on bonds, right? When bond prices, when the interest rates went up, it killed our bond funds, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, doing individual bonds. I run my strategies are all individual stocks, individual bonds and individual structured investments do a lot of structured notes. Nice. And it's all discretionary too. Yeah, love those. I I got blown up a few times in bond funds throughout the past. So I've been doing the bond ladders for many years. It's a lot more work on your end to to have to do that, though. So it's really how do you have the capacity to do it and to handle it properly. So let's talk. Yeah, yeah, we can have a whole discussion on structured notes. Those have become a lot of fun as well. Yeah, they're, I mean, with today's rates, you can get some really nice yields and pretty low risk. So pretty good stuff. You don't have to take the risks you might have had to two, three, four years ago with them for sure. Uh, talk a little bit about the perfect RIA. When did you get into it? When did you want to start helping financial advisors? When did like just running the practice go? I'm kind of bored with that. I want to do something a little different. Yeah, back early 2017, when Michael Kitsis kicked off his podcast, he did this like all call, like, does anybody want to be on the podcast? So I, I emailed him. I'd never met him before. I said, sure, like maybe this is interesting. I take a lot of time off work and I have this really efficient practice and high profit margin. Like maybe that's interesting. And he emailed me right back. He says, that's super interesting. We'd love to have you on the show. I was his seventh guest. And I just thought that was kind of fun. And then from that moment, like my whole world shifted because now tens of thousands of advisors from all over the world have reached out and said, wait, wait, how do we learn to do what you do? So before that, I was just content. Like I even said on that episode, like, hey, I'm, I just crossed it. At that point, I just crossed a million dollars gross at a 50% profit margin. Your listeners can do the math. I'm living a great life. I'm just going to do this forever. And Michael laughed. He said, hey, people like you don't sit still. And, and it kicked off the perfect RA from there. So you have a partner in that as well, yes. right? Yes. Yep. 
Hey, my, my good friend, Micah Shalansky. So we always joke that we met online dating. He had set a goal that year in 2017 to meet another lifestyle advisor because he there's lots of, there's a lot of old guys in the industry. I'm going to call myself a young guy. A lot of old guys just riding their practice into the sunset, but he couldn't find anybody that was young, still growing, running a lifestyle. So he heard that episode. He lives in Alaska at the time I lived in Seattle, reached out to me. We became best of friends. We started our podcast. We started our coaching program, started a tax company. So it's been a lot of fun. Talk about what's the goal of the Perfect RIA? Where does it go from here? I mean, 2017, it was you get invited to this podcast and then you start the website and just take us through the progression from 2017 through 2022. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah, 2017, I meet Micah, Micah Schlansky up in Alaska. 2018, we start doing masterminds. And then one day we're sitting in a bar in Boulder, Colorado. And we say, you know what? The industry needs a podcast that is run by advisors that is telling them what they do, which Brad is Evan, exactly what you're doing, right? Like buy advisors for advisors. Your show wasn't there yet at the time. I'm glad to have discovered it because the other thing we saw is there was all these people coming to the industry telling advisors how to run their practice, but they had never had a practice themselves. And you and I know from experience, it's a lot different to run a practice than to think about running a practice. For sure. Yeah. It's funny. I listened to Kitsis and I listened to the diamond podcast, which actually I'm on an episode. I think it's coming out this week, which will be cool. And those were like the main ones. And then there wasn't a lot out there. And I didn't discover yours until after I'd, <laughs> I had done my own. And I think sometimes that's the way it works. You think there's not yeah. other podcasts out. And what's nice is that to be able to hear from advisors that are already doing it and that it's not geared towards client capture and more about mm-hmm. having good relationships with other advisors and what you're doing is something unique and, and fun. And there should be a lot more of it. Yeah, it's always sad that there's not more of it. I mean, Evan, I don't know your early years in the industry, but mine were brutal. In fact, I think everyone's were brutal. We go to the BD conferences or whatever, and they would parade across the top advisors. Here's Dave, and he did $10 gazillion. And then you'd say, Dave, how did you do that? And he'd say, well, I, I went out and I saw the people. I, well, what does that mean? Like, what did you say to him? What was your first meeting like? And it wasn't until I was able to get mentored by successful advisors that I was able to be successful myself. Yeah, I agree. And it's, they always say the, it's not the person that creates it, it's the person that steals it. Are there ideas <laughs> and there are other things out there that other advisors are doing and why not share those things? And I always said when I got to, I don't, I don't want to say the top because I don't think there's ever, I'm ever at the top, but no. whenever I progress to the next stage, I said to myself, I'm going to share what I've learned and what I've done because there's a million other advisors out there. They're not going to take from what you're doing. If you're good and you're good at building oh. relationships, you're going to have those relationships. There's such a massive shortage of good advisors in the industry that even if you and I train thousands of advisors, right, we're still not even going to ever bump into them. There's so much room in our industry to deliver value. And then there's a big chunk of our industry that's competing over like who can be the lowest cost advisor. Like, great, knock yourself out. Like if you want to run a broke practice where you can't afford to keep the lights on, like that's fine. Like I want to deliver massive value to clients. I want to get paid accordingly. I want to deliver a lot of value to the industry. Yeah, which is awesome. So talk about the business. You talk a little bit on the podcast about working through three days a week, four days a week, not just not killing yourself. Are you looking to expand? Are you thinking about bringing in the next gen advisor? Uh, Has there been thoughts on expansion? Yeah, yeah. So we brought on a, we'll use the industry term junior advisor, elite advisor two years ago. We're looking to bring on a second one now. And Mike and I are doing the same in our respective practices, right? Because we have separate practices right now. But yeah, we're slowly, because any practice that's not growing is dying, right? Because clients get older, people take distributions, people pass away. And so we want to keep that fresh. I also want to make sure, uh, Evan, just like your show, that what I'm talking about are things that I'm really doing every day in my practice. So if I've got a practice where I'm just sitting back collecting the checks, that's not super helpful to anybody. But if I have a practice that's growing and still delivering value, still doing surge meetings, I can relay that to my audience, just like you do. 
What would be some valuable advice you would give to those advisors, speaking to those advisors that have been in the business for a year or two, they just haven't found their mojo yet, what they're doing. Give us some bullet point key advice you would give to those advisors. Yeah, yeah. Number one, stop playing office, which would be turn off like all your alerts. There's just no alerts that an advisor needs to have short of like your spouse calling you. Everything else can go to voicemail. Emails don't need to pop up. The other big good is you need to count every week. What lever are you going to pull that's going to move your prospect engine forward, right? So for me, a lot of my prospects came from centers of influence. And so every week I would call five centers of influence and try to get a meeting with them. And I talk about in my book how I did that. But that was my number. There's like every week because otherwise days go by, weeks go by, months go by, and you haven't done any prospecting activities, making smart aleck remarks on LinkedIn doesn't count. Like you haven't done any prospecting activities, then you're surprised when you don't have a pipeline of prospects, right? Like, how come I haven't taken any new clients? You haven't done anything. And for the advisors that are thinking about taking over for their parents or for an older advisor, you made a switch with your dad. Talk a little bit about how that transition worked. I mean, obviously he worked with you for many years before he departed, but how was that move? Yeah. So again, my good friend, Micah, he also works with his dad has and works with his sister. And we always somewhat jokingly, somewhat seriously say, never work with family. <laughs> just we just say like, even though we all work with family, we say never work with family. I had a couple of good events that worked out. So, so I joined dad in 2003 and he had really hoped, and I see this all the time in multi-generational practices, whether they're related or not, that bringing in a new person on the team was going to somehow breathe a lot of life into the practice. Like somehow all the prospecting woes would go away. All the efficiency woes would go away. And it almost never works that way. So from 2003 to 2008, we made pretty much no progress. We were at the same revenue, basically. Then the financial crisis hit. And uh, in the middle of the financial crisis, dad got real sick. He's better now, but he got real sick. And overnight in the middle of the financial crisis, he had to quit. And so there I was, we were running out of money. We were borrowing money all over the place. And then he had to leave. And so I thought, crap, this thing is going to blow up. Everything I was afraid to do or that he and I were afraid to do, I'm just going to do because this ship is burning down and I might as well go out in a flame of glory. And so I raised fees. I fired clients that weren't paying us. I streamlined things and we turned the ship around. So I had this good forcing mechanism of the financial crisis and his sickness, and again, he's better now, that forced us to make that change, also forced him to step away. Now, a few years later, he got better. He came back, started working for me. But what I see again in a lot of practices is there's this fairy tale of I'll bring in a junior and magically all the problems in my practice will go away. And then the other half of that is then the senior never retires or never lets go. So like, I want this junior to come in. I want them to change everything, but I'm not going to let them change anything. I'm not going to hand off any clients. I'm not going to let them raise our fees. And that's where I see juniors get killed, right? These younger advisors come in and they say, oh, Jarvis, guess what? I'm taking over this practice. And unless you have a contract that says in 2025, they're going to hand over the reins. It's probably never going to happen. Yeah, they tend to never leave. They tend to milk it. And a lot of them, it's funny. You wonder if some of them never actually had the intention of leaving. And it was just a way of bringing in an advisor to do some of the dirt work. Yeah, it could be. I think a lot of times, and there's a great financial advisor, Denise Logan, she wrote a book about this. The senior advisors can't imagine themselves not being an advisor. So maybe they thought it was a good idea. And then when they looked at the threshold of like, wait, if I'm not an advisor, what am I? And then to your point, Evan, like in this industry, you can ride off in the sunset for a long time and collect a lot of money and not do anything. That's a pretty tempting proposition. Talk about, you mentioned firing clients and I think advisors have a very hard time trying to fire clients. I've even, I have clients that like, I just, there's reasons 
beyond what I want to talk about on this show of why I wouldn't want to fire them because it just could turn into something that you don't want it to turn into. Talk about firing clients and how do you go about doing that? Yeah. In fact, I, this week, as we're recording this week, I have two meetings with client, two different clients that were graduating. We call it graduating now instead of firing. It feels a little bit less painful and it's really hard. It's probably like after raising your fees, graduating clients is probably the hardest thing you can do in your practice, just from like a psychological standpoint. And so I'm going to meet with these two clients, both of which have been clients for more than a decade and say, hey, it no longer makes sense for us to work together. The fees that I charge are detrimental to your success. But great news, I found another advisor I can introduce you to, which, by the way, Evan, is a great advantage you have of like being inside of Raymond James, right? There's other advisors already on platform. Being independent, I don't have that. But those are really like I'm not looking forward to those discussions. Like, hey, well, Jarvis, we've worked with you for 10 years. Why now? Well, as I as my kids get older, as I'm reprioritizing my time, as I have other business opportunities, I'm being very selective on the people I work with. And unfortunately, it doesn't make sense for us to work together anymore. And yeah, it's a I mean, really hard discussion yeah. to have. Yeah, I'm on the Ray J platform. I'm on the independent side, though. So I'm not, there's nobody I can necessarily hand it off. Ah, that's but, true. But just like you, if there's a friend or, or somebody in the business, yeah. the problem, though, is that most advisors, I can tell you, I'm ultra skeptical. <laughs> if somebody ever says, hey, I have a client, I no longer want him as my client, you can have him. I'm like, nope, don't want him. <laughs> no. So I, I wonder this friend that you have, it must be a, a small book just in the middle of growth stage, I'm guessing. Yeah, typically, right? It's going to have to be a younger advisor. And my good friend, Benjamin Brandt, great financial advisor, he always says like, hey, your C client or D client is somebody else's A client. And so it would need to be a young advisor, right? Because these clients are still a few hundred thousand in assets. That's a great client for a starting advisor. Yep. Now, is that advisor as experienced as I am? No, obviously not, right? But will they do a phenomenal job for that client? Yeah, they will. But, but you're right. Typically, you'd want to regard that with skepticism, right? If somebody's offering you clients, right? Ask them how the pending lawsuit is doing, right? Or whatever's behind that one. Talk about the concept of independence. What does independence do for your practice that working at a firm would not be able to accomplish? Oh boy, that's a good question, Evan. I would say these days, it's a short list. Like when we look at you know, before when you and I were younger in the industry, there weren't independent channels inside of Ray J or inside of LPL, right? It was like you were full bread and butter or you were fully out. Now that these independent platforms exist, I don't know that there's a whole lot of difference, right? I mean, the compliance rules are essentially the same. For me, it's personal preference. Like I was already on the independent side. Now, if I, if I was inside of Ray J or LPL, I'd be pretty hard pressed to roll out. Yeah, I mean, I, from what I've seen, the main difference is owning the ADV, but sans that, yep. owning your clients at the end of the day is the same value. I guess less disclosure because you don't have your own ADV, I mean, would be the only thing I could think about. And I guess more freedom in, in a lot of the things we do, we have to put, this is not the opinion of or have those kind of comments down there. But yeah, I guess it's far and few between. I just wanted to see, I always ask that question to independent RIAs. And some of them will straight up say, if you're not an independent RIA, you're not truly independent and you shouldn't be in the business. Or it was laugh yeah. at that and go, I, different strokes for different folks. It, it depends. Like it, there's never a bad product. There's a bad product for that person, right? So same thing with wirehouses or broker dealers or where you're at. So it's interesting that was your response because normally you don't get that. No, well, that's my contrarian nature. Now you need to know what you're paying, right? Whether you're, and this is whether you're independent or you're inside of a channel or you're at a wirehouse, Right. You want to look and say what's actually being deducted from the client's account and what's actually getting paid to my bank account. So not this, like I was talking to an advisor and he was saying, oh, XYZ firm, we don't need to name, name them. I have a 97% payout. But then we look, it's like, well, it's 97% of 90% minus these technology fees. Yep. Like, I don't care what the grid says. 
What I care about is how much came from the client's account and how much landed in your bank account. Now, if you're a full RAA and you're fully independent, cool, it's the same question. How much came out of the client's account after you paid all your bills and expenses, how much landed in your bank account? And a lot of times, I mean, those numbers end up being the same between the different channels, right? Because the expenses are like there, like Ray J is paying for things that if you weren't with Ray J, you'd have to pay for on your own. So the, if you don't mind, let me dive into that question real quick. So yeah. you're at that practice number that in my head says going RIA is feasible and makes sense, where if you're less than that by maybe not so, if you looked at, forget staff and all that, because obviously that's going to go into your equation, but that's the same, that would be the same number I have. Without going yeah. into two specifics, what do you think your actual payout is after platform fees and lawyers, the ADV, all of that, all of the stuff that a non, I would guess, you, I would say that you're fully RIA where I'm fully independent, right? What mm -hmm. do you, what's your payout based upon the same cost that we would have on our, or not the same cost we would have on our end? Yeah, you know, that number I don't have off the top of my head. I don't want to say the wrong number. At the end of the day, after I pay for all of my bills, like my team, my office, my internet, I'm at 50, about 50%, 55% depends on the year. Yeah, but that, that's about if the I looked same. at just, yeah, that's about yeah, the same. Because if I, I looked at just, yeah. Well, I, the reason I'm asking you is there's a lot of people on the independent chassis like myself that have books of business. Now, I'm not looking to leave. I like the chassis I'm on. I'm going to stay here for many as long oh, yeah. as I can. I'm happy. But there are people that go, why don't I just go RIA? Why don't I just get my own ADV and just do that? I'm wondering, you know, based on if you're doing 500, you know, if you got 500 million under AUM, I think there's a clear 10% probably difference. I'm wondering at your difference, is there not much of a difference? Are we still, we don't count employment. We don't count rent. We just count operational support. Okay. So as far as account openings, research platforms, data analytics, things along those lines. Yeah. If we're just doing that, like efficient market theory would tell us that it has to be cheaper to be on Ray J's platform than to have your own RA, if only because of economies of scale. Like, let's just kind of back that out. Right. So like, I think I'll have to pull up my PL. I think my compliance legal expense last year was bumping up against $40,000. Now I use a pretty good legal firm and we have them do a lot of stuff for us, but you know, Ray J has a whole in-house legal firm. Right. So their hourly rate for legal is less than mine because they're not paying a third party firm. I mean, maybe they are. I don't know. But the numbers have got to be pretty close. Right. So okay. there's this illusion like sometimes and there's going to be RAs listening to this. Right, Evan, and they're going to email us. I'm like, well, I'm at a I'm at a 97 percent profit margin. Sure, you are. You have one hundred thousand dollars gross. You have no employees. You're working 60 hours a week. Yeah, you're tonight because you're not paying yourself. Right. Yeah. Like I do all my own compliance. I fill out my own ADV every year. Great. Good news. Let me know how your SEC audit works out. But that's still a cost. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I would love to actually hear, if you ever get into that, a, a podcast that like actually dictates what the fees are and what you have to cover that you wouldn't have to cover if you were independent on an LPL or a Ray J platform. I can tell you, I've looked out there and the fees, from what I've seen on RN, all net, pre your employees, pre your rent, pre your cable bill and, and all that, and you're in, including state registrations, all that, you're probably close to 80, 80, 82, 83, maybe in the higher 70s. And then once you calculate rent and all that, you're probably going to be somewhere in the 50s to 60s range like you. And again, you could choose to work out of your house or in my situation, my rent's 100,000 yeah, sure. a year for my building. So I, I put a lot into my rent because, well, 
I want the place to look nice when clients walk in. So there's the tr true ad. I think I've never heard a true breakout yeah. on the RIA side. So that would be an interesting conversation if you ever have one. I mean, Evan, I would love to. I mean, between you and I, like, I'd be glad to like lay out my PL and you and I can go line by line. Like, we'll have to be careful what we broadcast to the world. But I'm always super curious because then you and I can look. And I do this in my masterminds. Like, hey, I see that you spent $30,000 in legal fees. What was that? I see you paid your accountant 20 grand. What was that? I see you paid the house 107,000. Like, is that offsetting? But I will push the other, I had a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, he was with another group, not Ray J. And he, we did the math. He says, oh, I'm not paying my broker dealer hardly anything. We said, well, let's do the math. So we pull out everything. He was paying his broker dealer $400,000 a year in overrides, $400,000 a year. So we said, hey, listen, in this case, there's no way they're bringing $400,000 of value to the table. You need to make a change. His was a pretty, he, like, he was with a captive group. Like that's more of a wirehouse model. But Evan, to your point, like, the numbers are closer than most people let on. Yeah, uh, a lot of that's just like trying to grab headlines. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I'm interested to see what that is. And I'd be happy to do that with you because I think I, I'd love to know what the differences are and see what they are. I, so. I'd be glad to, man. In a like we both sign NDAs and in a private setting to it's one of the most powerful things I've done for my practice is get together with a group of other successful advisors. We all sign NDAs, outcome the PLs, outcome the tax returns, outcome the net worth statements. And you want to have some honest discussions about your life and your practice. Nothing is more honest when I hand you, Evan, my PL, and you're like, wait a second, Jarvis, you told me you're at a 53% margin, but I'm doing the math here and it's 43. Like you're kidding yourself at the tune of $200,000 a year. Like, let's figure this out. That's where we have real discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you look at the business models of what some of these firms are doing. And yeah, of course, you can always make more money going independent. There's zero doubt that you can because you have the ability to, sure. to control what expenses you want to pay, which is important. So. Matt, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Very interesting guy. I keep up the content. There, the one thing I'll sometimes talk to other advisors that are not on LinkedIn and they'll go, but why are you on LinkedIn? Like, why, why do you spend time on there? And I go, I, I don't do it for business. I do it for pure entertainment. No. I watch you. I watch Anthony Ruffalo. I watch Keith Wilson. Yeah. I, I watch these. And I'm again, I'll call you a character with all due respect. These characters Please. that are on there because it's just so interesting and so fun. And it makes our business enjoyable. There's aspects of our business that are extremely stressful and, and heartfelt. And there's aspects of our business that are fun. And some sometimes when you are independent and you are on an island and you do own your own company, you don't get that same camaraderie. And so LinkedIn kind of helps provide that a little bit, which is interesting. So yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Evan, thanks for having me on your show. And thanks for doing your show, man. I know you've been doing this a little more than a year now. Like this is stuff that you and I would have killed to have at the beginning of our careers, right? To be able to have like a top advisor who's just saying like, let me just, I got no agenda here. Let me just tell you what's working and what's not working. Game changer. So I would say for your listeners, for everybody else, like Evan's got it figured out. Like if you want to be successful, just do what Evan's doing and you'll get to this crazy level of success. And then you can decide like, oh, I want to fine tune this or I want to do this differently. But until you're, until you beat Evan on the list, just do what he's doing. Like, it's not that, it's not that complicated. It's hard. It's not complicated. Prince, repeat, repeat, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how can they? Yeah. Check out the perfect RA, the perfect RA.com. You can check out the perfect RA podcast. Those are really the best way to get a hold of us. You can check out like kids.com slash seven was my episode. Kids.com 247 was my second episode on there. Excellent. Matt, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to have you. One, one more round of applause for you. And I uh, hope everybody enjoyed today's show. If you're interested in getting a hold of Matt, do so. If you want to get a hold of me, do so. And again, I hope you enjoyed today's show. See you at the next one.